0: Good evening and uh, welcome everybody to this edition of uh, the Norwegian Council for Africa's uh, seminar series called Africa North, Africa Now. This is a monthly uh, event uh, in which we take on various topics, uh, um, country cases. Uh, on we try to sort of gauge what's what's going on and and, and uh, um, disseminate and and discuss. Important discussions that are taking place on the continent and, and to hear voices uh, from various parts of the continent. And uh, today we are very pleased to to be able to uh, collect um, such a strong panel uh, of discussions to talk to to talk about uh, press freedom, uh, in particular in the southern region, the southern part of, of Africa. Uh, we are also very pleased to be able to 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 cooperate with the Governance Group. For, uh, for this event. event. Um, uh, hosting uh, a group of Angolan journalists uh, uh, here uh, this week uh, in, in a cooperation with uh, Angolan co- uh, with the Angolan government um, here to, to discuss, discuss matters such as, uh, as press uh, freedom. Um, so we're very very privileged to, to have you um, here. Uh, and also, not least, Charles-Lyago Obo being present here is, uh, to us, the Norwegian Gaspar Africa, uh, a great uh, honour. In introducing uh, tonight's uh, topic more generally, and specifically uh, the panel as a whole, I'll I'll leave to the the following uh, speakers. Uh, I'll just uh, let you all know that uh, this event is being recorded, uh, and will be published subject to no technical difficulty and will be published as a podcast uh, afterwards so you can share with all your uh, friends who are not able to attend. Um, please also note that this means that if you have questions from, from the audience, please speak into the mic so that we are able to, to, to also make that part of the podcast. Okay, so without further ado, I will leave uh, the word to our co organizer the governance group, uh, so Lokin.
1: Sure. Like it. Great. Thank you, Han. Good evening. <coughs> I'm Joachim Nahen. I'm the... Someone with a short cord here. I'll try to... This here. I'm the director of the, the governance group. And I've been asked to speak about the, the sort of background on press freedom uh, for Africa in particular. But I will just take you quickly through the, the sort of landscape of uh, democratic... Development and uh, challenges, um, which is the the context for for Africa and this particular subject on uh, press freedom, um, and also our colleague from uh, Angola, Brenda, will give us a update specifically on Angola uh, and press freedom and media environment there. So I will hand over to her when I've given a, a little bit of a background. But to get us started, it's it's difficult to speak about press freedom without speaking about Democracy or democratization uh, in a larger context. So this press freedom is obviously closely linked to democratic governance, democratic institutions and environment in a country. And if we look at the, the overall picture, uh, it is you don't really need to follow the news that closely to see that it's pretty dim, uh, that there's been a sort of negative development on democratization. I can also just say as a sort of footnote, you know, measuring democracy. We could have had a separate or probably several seminars on how you measure press freedom, how you measure democracy, democratic development, etc. If time permits, I will speak briefly on that because it's something I've been working on for quite some time. But if we look at the, the sort of big picture and you look at Freedom House or uh, the Mo Ibrahim Index, which is an index that measures democracy and good governance, particularly for Africa, they all show the same thing in that This is the 13th year in a row where you have a backsliding of democracy, where you have less freedom, more infringement on human rights, uh, less press freedom, less free uh, media. But what is particularly worrying is that we're seeing that it's not just sort of usual suspects of authoritarian governments where press freedom, or where you have a sort of negative development. It's that many established democracies, including from the West, which are seeing lower scores, or they're basically seeing negative trends when it comes to democracy. So when again, if you look at the read these Freedom House report for 2017, it will point out that quite established democracies like the United States, like Poland, uh, like Hungary, uh, even in the, on the African continent, where South Africa has always been the sort of top performer and the role model of democratization, they've had a negative development the past uh, years. So this trend is also true for, for Africa uh, as a region. This, this backdrop of authoritarian governments becoming more authoritarian, of democracies sometimes leaning more towards hybrid democracy, where you're getting certain elements of authoritarian rule, uh, which we, again, have seen in our sphere of the world, in the, the West. Now, these are sort of important trends and facets for this discussion of press freedom, because it also is sending a, a type of signal to countries where you perhaps have less press freedom, that there, there's less pressure on them. There is sort of less, it's, it's harder for uh, governments in the West or under development aid to say, you know, why are you not doing this on press freedom? Uh, why are you not upholding rights? So the sort of legitimacy that some countries spoke of or spoke with uh, to these other countries before is deteriorating because the backdrop is quite negative for all countries when it comes to democratization. Um, now, when we speak about press freedom in particular, the other big trend that's happened in the past 10, 20 years is not just this overall uh, development on democracy. And I, I should just interject also that there are academics or there are observers of democracy who would say, well, if you look at historically, we're still better off. That, you know, if you just focus on the last 10, 15 years, yes, it looks uh, it's a pretty bleak picture. It's quite negative. But if you look at it over several decades, we are still sort of more free as a world. You have more democratic development uh, than you had 30, 40, 50 years back. And these waves of democracies that we've spoken about, uh, even though we're kind of in a counter wave now, overall, uh, the development has been positive. And as we'll hear later that, you know, we need to be quite nuanced when we speak about that, because there are countries, there's fast changing political landscape, including Angola, where there are Um, developments and improvements if you look closer at a continent where where there are some glimmers if you like of uh, if not hope but positive developments we need to take that into account but the other sort of big thing that's happened the past 10-15 years obviously is the introduction of technology of uh, internet of media itself this has also changed the kind of playing rules uh, for freedom of the press and democratization on the one hand it's very positive because internet and uh, the, the, the sort of realm of uh, the media has changed, so it allows for more voice, it allows for people who did not have access to traditional media to get their opinion and voice out there. At the same time, you have governments who have mastered, if you like, or who have sort of taken control more of internet and new um, technology to suppress and be more oppressive or be more authoritarian. And then we have, you know, obviously this phenomenon of fake news and uh, things that we are perhaps uh, almost exporting from the West to the South. You see all of these elements are also taking place in in Africa. So much of the democracy debate we've had the past four years or five years um, in the West, including with Trump in the United States, these elements of fake news, of um, not giving journalists access, uh, of uh, trying to restrict media organizations, And the whole conversation on private versus publicly owned media uh, which is uh, perhaps not so controversial in norway but in the uk and the united states it's a big topic all of these issues are very much present in africa as well um so i think when we we speak about press freedom uh, we need to sort of take this bigger context into account and then we need to also when we speak about measuring these things we need to be a little bit more nuanced so there are a few new initiatives, uh, including Freedom House, has this measuring internet freedom. Because the technology has changed, you need to sort of look at different kind of indicators on freedom when it comes to press freedom. Uh, you have some indicators that have traditionally been used, which are the number of journalists killed in a country, and that is somehow a proxy of press freedom. It's not that nuanced uh, as a indicator, and before you've had a lot of expert opinion and perception. Uh, uh, which is the driver, main driver of these type of measurements. But I think it is important to sort of look at the technology and look at the, some of the measurement tools we have on democracy and press freedom to really try to capture this. I'm not really, that was sort of meant as a, a broad swipe of the, the landscape, if you like, on democratization and, and freedom. I won't really go into much more detail other than to say again that we will hear some examples specific countries where there is positive development, where there is perhaps particularly bad development, or where you have good and bad things happening at the same time. And this is the type of focus where it's really interesting to speak about specific countries, you know, including in East Africa, where you have some very strong uh, press freedoms and some very strong practices. At the same time, you have authoritarian and restrictive practices that live sort of side by side. But I think I'm going to ask uh, our colleague, Brenda, from um, the newspaper Opaish in uh, Angola, just to give us a little bit of update on Angola. The reason why we wanted to have this event is that traditionally when you speak about press freedom in Africa, and you know, no offense, Charles, but it is usually East Africa, sort of usual suspects of countries. So we're quite pleased to be able to sort of have Angola as a country where you can speak about this topic, because it's usually not a country that really comes up or participates, participates that much in these type of debates. Um, so I would actually like to give the, the floor to our colleague Brenda to speak a little bit about uh, Angola and recent events <coughs> on uh, media and press freedom there.
2: Uh, thank, you, thank you, everybody here. Um, first up, good evening. My name is Brenda Sambu. I am a journalist uh, of uh, newspapers in Angola. Uh, uh, to talking about the Angola media, I, I have to say that uh, uh, Angola press is so developing relations some years ago because now in Angola, we have so different presses as a private, as a public. So we have uh, radios, uh, we have more televisions, we have more news- newspapers today, and other things. Other the moment, that press Angola is leaving too, is with a more freedom of expression, mainly in a public uh, press. Today, we can say that the public press in Angola just speak uh, about everything: employment, poverty, corruption something that didn't happen in the past. And I will tell you why that, that thing happened just now. The more freedom of t- expression in Angola only happened we, because of President of Angola, as we know, Jean Lorenzo, asked for a great openness of press freedom by the press. And in this moment, we are seeing that there is a competition between public and private press. We can see it. I'm working uh, as a journalist about three years, and I can see it happens. Uh, Just to finish. I want to tell you something that our president (coughs) said. There is no democracy without freedom of expression and the freedom of the press. So in this moment, we are just in a good way and I think that the things will just be the best in the future for us. Thank you for your attention. <laughs> yes, thank you.
3: Brenda, while, 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 while you're sitting here, I would like to ask you at least one question.
2: Yes.
3: You were talking about that there's a difference between the public media and the private media.
2: Yes.
3: But who owns the private media? Why, why is there a difference? Uh,
2: Public media is a uh, state media
3: mm. yeah and who 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 owns who are the owners of the private companies uh
2: some some of government detains uh companies privated, some mm. no uh, uh, more some of them mm. the government the uh, private media mm. so mem- members happens. of
3: the old regime yeah. yeah some of the government, old government people and and ministers and generals. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Good, thank you very much. Thanks. I will, um, my name is Jan Speed. I'm a journalist in Bistanz Aktuellt and have been asked to moderate a sort of discussion. Um, We've been given sort of a topic, the long walk to press freedom in Africa, which is (laughs) <laughs> a very, a very, a very long and big, a big topic. Um, I, I think, think you all can can join us again at the at the table. Um, I'd thought that we'd give the panel some brief remarks each. We'll have a little bit of a discussion here, but then, would very quickly want to open up for questions from the floor. Um, more participation as things as things go along. Um, we've already been introduced to. Uh, to to charles uh, who uh, has a long career in uganda and kenyan kenyan media um joachim we've also met um our, we also have board on who's professor at the Norwegian center for human rights and marian saber who's freelance journalist um, part of the norwegian investigative journalism group scoop and one of the um, sharpest pens in in Norwegian media so um welcome to you all but i think i think we must almost go across the continent back to back to the east coast or at least sort of partially to the east and let sh- take t- take hold of the whole element of social media and governments attacks Or or attempt to restrict the use of social media by activist groups. Uh, Charles, what what is what is what is happening? Will will the governments manage? Um,
4: I think yes. I mean, on a scale of one to ten, they'll probably uh, do a seven. And. and you know the reason for that is the and, and I think it's important to look at the structural reasons why these things happen because the <clears throat> the if if you profile East Africa and most of Africa the reason why you have a lot of you know where you tend to have press repression is where you have weak um Competition or opposition parties. So, the because the party system tends to be very weak in most of Africa, what has happened is that traditionally, the media shifted and became kind of the opposition party, and that explains why you tend to find a level of repression and antagonism, which is sometimes you say you know, uh, but. So, so even liberal polities, where the party system is weak, you will tend to see that. Now, that then relates to what has happened next, because where you have a weak party system, you intended to have very poor aggregation of national voice. What social media has done is that social media has provided the infrastructure that traditional um, opposition and even civil society structures could not provide. So they are aggregated voices in ways which present threats to the political system beyond just being social media. So so that necessarily means there is a greater investment in contesting um, you know social media. Now um, so we, you begin to see across the board, in Tanzania, they have levied heavy fines for bloggers, there are social media taxes, there are all sorts of rules of access. But all of them have something in common which a lot of uh, people miss. They don't just deal with press, they layer on other interesting things. So that if you see the Kenya Computer Misuse Act, if you see the Tanzania law, they all layer in benefits like um, privacy. Uh, you know there are laws which, reve- uh, like in Kenya, crackdown on revenge porn. Uh, that uh, that attack on hate speech provisions. So these are omnibus laws where you have fifty percent of it is stuff that you hate, but fifty percent is the stuff that you like. So because of that packaging, they have been very very successful in buying sufficient public support to carry them across the line in legislation and presidential senate and and that's why i'm saying that if you look going forward for as long as you continue to have these privacy <coughs> issues uh hate speech issues even intellectual property rights and as long as they layer those on top of those legislations they are going to get much farther than they would in an ordinary environment where they were strictly aiming to deal with restriction of, uh, of social media, for example, or the Internet.
2: Mm.
3: Mm. And then, the board, how, how do you see this in the whole context of, of press freedom contra human rights?
5: Well, press freedom is a human right. Mm. And um, just mm. as uh, press freedom belongs to freedom of expression, uh, freedom to have form yourself opinions and to share information. So uh, there's uh, very strong links, and we cannot think about human rights without thinking about press freedom. And uh, when we look about ebbs and flows in press freedom, we certainly have to think about human rights and how that, if, how the human rights situation in the country usually is changing over time. It's changing all the time. There ebbs and flows and uh, there are advances and there are setbacks and today there seems to be a setback globally as uh, Joachim was talking about. Uh, But there is not just black and white in Africa as well. uh, Societies have different layers and if you look at some layers you will find certainly one picture which could be bleak and negative, on other sides you can find positive developments uh, I've uh, I've been to Kenya for the last thirty years and follow the media and not so much actually as a specialist, but I've used the media very much, and I can see that this ca- this country has had, particularly in the nineties, got a huge amount of of magazines, um, of uh, weeklies and monthlies that were, were able to dig deeper into society, while sometimes the media would be more superficial. But I'm also I don't know if you will really agree with me on that, but I. I'm still. I'm quite impressed with Daily Nation as a, an important paper in uh, in uh, in Kenya, in terms of allowing uh, opinions um, of the readers in terms of doing some level of critical journalism. Uh, I must say, but it, it goes in a little bit of ebbs and flows. The pendulum is swinging, and that has to do with the type of journalism very often that is carried out. If you have journalism which is going towards and close to power, that is when the troubles start to to develop. And in Kenya, uh, as in Tanzania and Uganda as well, I presume, uh, the issues of corruption uh, and political power certainly is uh, at stake. Um, So these cases where you find attacks on journalism, which you do, and there are more of them now than there used to be some, some 10 years ago, at least in Kenya, um, is connected with uh, journalists who would like to look into police brutality, uh, disappearances of people, uh, illegal killing of people by the police, um, uh, corruption, certainly, and these issues which have to do with power. So that is, and you might be right about sort of the, the, the how how secure a government is might influence how it relates and reacts to to critical journalism from a human rights perspective certainly critical journalism and 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 freedom of the press is, is absolutely essential uh, there are limits to this rea- to this right there are limits to it but uh, these limits uh, should be of very serious concern for for democracy for stability of some sort uh, and uh, and there are some some other scope for doing for doing that. I I just when I came just before I came here, I I just looked at um, in the African context an interesting declaration on, princi- on principle on freedom of expression in Africa, um, which was issued in 2002 in Banjul. And uh, you know one of the w- important areas where we talk about limitation in in freedom of expression might be on the issue of reputation uh, that you shouldn't uh, offend people to a certain level um, and so on and so forth this is uh this is this concerns freedom of press in any society in our society as well is a contentious issue but in 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 um, in article 12 which talks about protecting reputation this declaration says that no one shall be found liable for true statements, opinions or statements regarding public figures, which it was reasonable to make in the circumstances. In other words, people in power has to tolerate more critics, uh, critics than, <laughs> say, the common man might have to do. And that is, that is, uh, that is very important. Mm.
3: Thank you very much. Because you, you were pointing out, and all the speakers have pointed out, that they are... Positive and and neg- negative developments, and one of the um, positive developments, as I as I see it, has, has been in a way a, a rise of investigative journalism in, in Africa. You have um, in South Africa, the, you have the group the Amabungane, um, uh, who have a very nice um, slogan because Amabungane is the um, is the dung,
5: dung
3: the dung beetle, and their their slogan is digging up the dirt to fertilize democracy. And um, that strikes me as sort of quite an quite an apt um, slogan for um, for investigative journalists. And and you um, have, have worked quite a lot with investigative journalists in Africa.
6: I guess I'm here as a sort of a practitioner. Partic- uh, for the past 15 years, I've worked with uh, various African journalists in like various African countries, um, and partly true networks of investigative journalism and investigative journalists uh, which is in some way a front line uh, when it comes to against all these attacks as well but uh, as Jan says there has been a tremendous uh, development in investigative journalism and also the building of networks and I think um, it's 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 we talked about it a bit earlier that the digital age it gives opportunities and it gives risk as well it's much more risky now because when you publish something it gets spread all over the place and and uh, so it puts people at risk but at the same time the digital age is a wonderful tool uh, when you don't need to be on the ground and it's a wonderful tool uh, that uh, makes us able to work together Um, across borders. Uh, I've been working with the Norwegian Foundation for Investigative Journalism. We are in partnership with the Global Fund or global Network of Investigative Journalism, and we have members as well. You mentioned Bungane is in there, uh, other organizations in especially Southern Africa, some in Eastern Africa as well, uh, and Nigeria, um, and we have been training journalists as well um, both in East Africa and Southern Africa. And we see this as a two-way sort of communication as well. It's a, it's a way to uh, train uh, both them and us. It's a way to develop networks that we can work through for everybody's security. Um, it's a huge issue of, of, of uh, it's, a, it's a big difference um, for me working out in Norway traveling through Uganda or traveling to South Sudan, uh, my security is is normally taken care of and I can always fly out. My local colleagues can't, uh, but sometimes I can publish things they can't publish. So it's, I think, um, when we see these waves going back and forth um, in press freedom and then freedom of expression as well, we have to, as journalists and especially as investigative journalists, always be one step sort of beyond that. We have to sort of be uh, in, in front of the development and, and, and sort of foresee what's the next sort of level of of, of um backlash as well. Mm-hmm. Um we didn't touch we we did touch on the, the new laws and on social media that uh, are coming into place in East Africa. There's also um has been development of, uh, or the security apparatus have been using new um, ways of of, uh, electronic monitoring that makes things more difficult as well. It means that we have to step up our efforts again with interpretation and our tools, what we use in our daily work to see that our sources are safe and things like that. So that's on sort of the practical bit that yes, we can think about what says in declarations or what we can sort of see the whole picture, but we have to be very practical in the way we meet the challenges that keeps on sort of coming our way as well.
3: Thank you. Um, getting a little bit back to whether these, these flows and, and movements, and this, of course, in Norway, we're very um, interested in, in Trump's fake news and... And Trump dominates completely all foreign, foreign coverage of, of most things. But, but you also have um, the Chinese model um, for development, which has also is, is, is attractive for, for some countries. And, and my question is, maybe both to your Joachim and, and to Charles, when you, when you look at the strong men and a few strong women in, in power in, in Africa, are they influenced by... Trump, by by China, by such role models, or are they just in themselves qu- quite good autocrats? <laughs>
5: <laughs> Do you, you have, have you a crack at it first? <laughs> you,
1: you, go, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's perhaps if you speak of Trump, it's a little bit early to say, but I I think people are following closely. I mentioned this thing about legitimacy. Is that you know? The standards that we have on press freedom or the sort of countries who (coughs) try to uh, push this agenda at the UN, uh, either in sort of soft ways in in terms of declarations, or sometimes we'll use a stick (coughs) in terms of saying either using aid or trade to promote democracy, promote human rights and press freedom. That game has been weakened tremendously, obviously, by Trump and others, because it's very difficult for the United States through other channels to sort of say, if you don't respect... Uh, press freedom rights. We are going to sort of cut a, uh, a trade deal with you. You have countries like Canada and maybe a little bit Sweden who who sort of flirt still with democracy, aid, and trade. But I think you know the United States has also tried to sort of separate these things. So that's in terms of legitimacy. But in terms in alternative models, I think you know the Chinese case is very interesting because if you look at um, corruption on the. The face of it, you know, China has sort of gotten tough on corruption. And part of that is not so much investigative journalists, but that they have their own investigations. They're holding quite powerful people to account. In the same way, what I think, you know, autocrats can learn from that is you can use the kind of fig leaf of good governance and democracy, it be it against corruption uh, or using press freedom and media in a very selective way to get rid of your opponents. So again, under uh, the rubric of, of uh, free media, planting stories or uh, using um, uh, stories to essentially weaken your opponents, that is something one can kind of learn. And I think that is sort of a model, a more cynical model where they they co-opt democracy or they co-opt some of these things about media and press freedom (coughs) to essentially have a a political game. And if you you look quickly across African sort of what we call the 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 bright spots, or what we call the positive developments, we should not forget the north also. Tunisia is the only country that's ranked as free uh, in all of, uh, uh, or has, I'm sorry, that in the the Arab and North Africa is the only country that's ranked free. If you look at Tunisia, you look at Zimbabwe, sort of recent countries where there's been some opening, uh, the Gambia, um, and to a certain degree, Angola. These are countries that are still driven very much by Strong men, if you like, uh, with not so much Tunisia, where, you know, one should be maybe a little bit sceptical to some of the opening up, and if it's anti-corruption or if it's press freedom, does it actually hurt themselves or is it being used for other means? So I think that sort of begs the question on how free it is or for what purpose they're using some of these opening ups.
4: Um, I, I think uh, Trump and the Chinese really don't, uh, have not... Uh, particularly enamored the African strongmen and women. And I think the single most influential person um, for the African strongmen has been Lee Kuan Yew. Mm. And I mean, the, it's 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 uh, once you mention Lee Kuan Yew, you kind of, you look chic, you look a chic dictator, you know, kind of a Louis Vuitton dictator. You know, you are terrible, but you know, you've got... Um, and, uh, and, and and you know one of the things that uh, um, happens is because the the problem with the Chinese um, model or even Trump is that you know it 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 contains something which is very problematic for a lot of African <coughs> politics because Africa has moved to a place today where you must acknowledge some form of political openness or competition and 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 that is why you know uh the Singapore model is very- attra- and it became the basis for the development state which was uh played out i think best in Ethiopia and places like uh, Rwanda of course it has unraveled very badly in uh, in Ethiopia and perhaps very good effect but I think that that is where uh, a lot of the attraction came from because there is this conversation in Africa about what uh, uh, people call the authoritarian bargain. In other words, for accepting authoritarian rule, what did you get? And I think the, the premium out of that has been very finely described these days. And uh, I think that if you play the game well, then you know, there are leaders who do that very well you basically uh, get by and I think that that model will probably continue uh, a little bit more for I myself I think it has about another two or so years for reason which we can you know talk later and I think we might see another shift
5: talking about the um, influence of, uh, of um, Trump for at least of uh, new media, he's the Twitter president. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that media mm-hmm. can play a positive role in society and a negative role in society. And um, we saw that very, very clearly in Kenya in the 2007 elections, when uh, media were used, even including social media, but at least local, ter- local radio stations, were used to mobilize uh, violently. We have the case of Sar Sang, uh, who even uh, was indicted at the International Criminal Court. He was later released because of all the lack of evidence, and uh, one might speculate why. But um, that, I- I- in any rate, that was a mobilization of uh, of violence uh, in a very contested area, uh, very very contested time. So I think that one thing which is essential in press freedom uh, in any society, including say Kenya, Tanzania and the UN and all the countries we're talking about, uh, is that you have a discourse inside the media, in some, among, among the press people, among, that you have education, that you have teaching, uh, investigative journalism being taught, and uh, that, you are, that this is a continuous process. In spite of setbacks, this, uh, there, are, there are progress in, in very mm-hmm. many respects on, on that side. But I think it's important to to look at both these sides. Wh- when is when, is, when are social media being used negatively, and mm-hmm. and uh, and how can we actually how can we actually prevent that from happening? There was it was a very impo- important and um, I would say positive role of the media of social media in uh, in Egypt uh, during the Arab Spring, certainly in mobilizing the masses. Um, but one thing I think is essential for this is that journalists or journalists in a country have, have, have networks, that there are international networks and that there are organizations like, uh, like uh, the Penn Society or, uh, or Journalists Beyond Borders that is in a way is constantly uh, external watchdogs and, and can assist I- internally. Because one thing is which is clear to me is that uh, people in high office uh, could be leaders, could be people at at, at at intermediary level, ministers, and people in power generally. They're concerned about the press. They they read the press and they are concerned about the press because they are usually they are in very competitive environments, and they can easily be attacked by others. For many reasons, but they are very concerned about their own reputation and, that, uh, and, and, and about their about the status in in the public,
1: including Trump,
5: including Trump,
3: absolutely, in absolutely. But, but, but that, that actually brings brings me to to, a, to another question, which I think I'll start. At, we'll start with Charles. We t- we talk about the press, and we think maybe very often of traditional newspapers, which even in in africa have minuscule circulations relating to relate in relation to to the population groups um you have of course radio and and tv now you have the social media but all of this is against the backdrop of a growing youthful population and i've seen in the way with the whole discussion about um, Bobby Bobby Wine and his um, his music videos and his use of social media and then of course the attacks on him by by the Ugandan government. This was all put into a context of the youth mobilising the youth talking for the youth. Who who actually does express
4: the youth's voice today? I think I think that the beauty of it is that it is very dispersed there's no single leader and it makes it very difficult to repress it um or to to buy the the, the guy or guy, you know lady off but but uh, you know just just an example with what happened in uganda with bobby wine here uh, president Museveni is a very very thick-skinned man eh? he's hmm. gone through a lot and uh, he he doesn't flinch very easily but, uh, but 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 uh, but one of the things that happened after the arrest of Bobby Wine there was like a huge campaign, and something mm-hmm. unprecedented happened in the space of two weeks. He gave two televised press conferences. One of them lasted five hours, um, so I was sat in my cold living room and I watching through this. But the other thing is that in the space of ten days, he wrote. Four blogs on Facebook to respond that I never, uh, you know, no, no. So in the space of ten days, he wrote seven blogs to, you know, to respond. So I mean, it was just an incredible testimony of, uh, of, uh, of, of just his own reading of the power of this. And I am told by uh, people who know his habits that he, you know, he counts his retweets. He counts his retweets and likes, <laughs> so and uh, and drives him totally crazy when when he when he does something and he gets uh, one thousand retweets and Bobby Wine does it and gets fifteen thousand. So <laughs> and so you know uh, he f- you know he doesn't because this is one he can he can control how he counts the votes uh, but he can't control the retweets. So it. <laughs> <laughs> It upsets him. So, obviously, he is very, very sensitive to this in ways in which, you know, you one wouldn't have seen come. But it's because it speaks to that constituency. So when you have, um, you know, uh, 78, nearly 80% of your population is, you know, under 30. And he begins to worry because the other thing that happened is how these communities relate to institutions which are important to power like the army, which is very, very youthful and very connected. So um, so I think it is that that he looks at and he says, okay, these guys went to the same school with the guys who are in my elite force, you know, with the guys who um whom we are deploying in our Somalia enterprise. So what if a community of empathy develops there and I don't have, so I think that that has added to his concern, but it he takes it more seriously than ever did take traditional media before. The,
6: it, like you, you mentioned uh, things like Amagumane in, in South Africa, and and um, it's it's when the whole Gupta leaks thing happened in South Africa, the whole leaks with all the emails and and all the stuff that happening around the Guptas and the Zuma family, it was the social media that actually drove it. And, and this was it was uh, published electronically. Not in. It, it was in papers after a while, but it was basically uh, uh, driven by social media and by a lot of young people basically in South Africa that kept on sharing it until it sort of sank in <laughs> uh, in traditional media as well.
1: I, don't know. I, I guess <clears throat> I, I asked our Angolan colleagues before I was curious about the... The number of uh, newspapers that were printed in Angola, so sort of hard copies of traditional press freedom, and the the, the largest uh, newspaper, the journal, I was told has a circulation of fifteen to 20,000 copies per day. So in a country with many million people, that means that they're getting their news or something uh, from elsewhere. So again, you know, they sort of, and I think you mentioned in, in uh, the, the largest Ugandan paper, somewhere about 20,000 or... So these same statistics about, you know, where are you getting your news? One thing is from uh, alternative media, but one thing we haven't spoken about are intermediaries. So, you know, young people, even though they have easy access or they usually have higher access directly to social media or Internet, they're still people of influence uh, who are somehow interpreting news. And we haven't really spoken about, you know, religion or or church uh, or other groups, uh, youth groups, others who are somehow leaders and telling them a narrative, uh, and we've seen some of this, for example, in, in South Africa with the, the, the youth wing of the ANC has a different narrative of explaining what's happening in the world and what's happening in South Africa, uh, and that, I guess, appeals to some youth. Again, in other countries, you'll have other intermediaries that will want to uh, do things. In in Senegal, we have this, you know, very interesting um, development a few years back when when WADA, who had been uh, held power for decades, was unseated, including by youth groups who mobilized uh, a lot of support from other youth, and it basically outsmarted and undid uh, power which had been um, consolidated for many years, but had somehow become stale and wasn't really paying attention to the power of media and youth and how they could use new channels to uh, basically take uh, power away from him. So I think you know, there's sort of youth, yes, the youth bulge, but it's also a question about where are they getting their their, um, their news from? And I think the other question is trust. You know, uh, we've seen an erosion of trust in many countries with traditional institutions and including the media and even NGOs and civil society. There's sort of less trust everywhere. So it sort of begs the question of sort of where youth, where who are they are going to trust and where are they going to get their news from? So I don't necessarily have the answers to that, but I think that is a big question. Uh, in the years to come? Where are they going to turn to see and interpret the, the world or their country?
5: Board. I think that's very important uh, and very interesting. It has to do with accessibility. Uh, what kind of media do we ac- are we able to access? And uh, we have to f- to remember, uh, talking about Africa, that very much of the discourse, very much information sharing doesn't happen due- through newspapers. A lot happens to TV, certainly. But there are other <coughs> more informal media, if you can call them that, which are important, like you say, the church, or, or churches or religious communities, where people usually go, different from this country. So they usually meet there, and they are not just uh, just not for for service traditional services. They are also sharing a lot of other concern and uh, political issues are being brought up. And I think that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, a very important channel. So. There is also one thing with the uh, the digital media and the social media that, which I don't know too much about, but it it is a claim that they are being compartmentalized. So you communicate with the people of your own group or people you agree with mainly. So you don't get that critical critical sort of opposition that you probably need in order to develop your your opinions in in a free and dialogical uh, way.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. I, I sort of in, in this discussion, I suddenly also sort of thought about the whole issue of talk radio, which is strong in South Africa. I know, in, for example, in Liberia, talk radio prior to all the elections, there's this umpteen stations where people basically just phone in and talk and tell and argue and criticise, yeah, and that's one of the sort of the most sort of dynamic, popular sort of. Mediums in at least in, in, in certain in certain in certain cu- certain countries but uh, getting back to the whole issue of um, what what will people trust in the future I suppose that varies from from country to country uh, I was in um, Ethiopia prior to um, to this the, the change, change in government and there it was very clear at least in certain areas that they trusted the diaspora websites hmm. that that was where People were getting getting influence, and, and we're basically getting instructions for mm-hmm. demonstrations. And the question is, for example, in East Africa, what do people trust, Charles?
4: Well, East Africa, you know, the the media is fairly entrenched, and eh? um, so the it is it's it is still shared. I think that in terms of their influence, if you look over the ten years, they have. As Joachim said, it's declined thirty, forty percent. But uh, but but that is very influential. And but there, are there, there are two other things which um, I mentioned today during our separate discussion in the morning. Is that there is a growth of um, I, I don't know what that happens here. Closed groups, closed so- social media group, and they run in the millions. And, uh, and I think that a lot of those closed groups have a bigger reach than any other formal media. And so there is a system of, uh, of trust and who does so. So you have this group of curators that emerge in that group now. There is, the, you could say what, there's too compartmentalized, too isolated. But also the evidence shows that people belong to many different groups. So even within the context of closed groups or sharing on closed Facebook, or you do actually get some kind of diversity. So my own sense is that a lot of that is going to grow. The other thing that we're seeing now is, you know, music has become a very, very powerful platform. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, uh, the, it's, it's, it's. If you take a you know, if you take a country like Nigeria, Nigeria goes a year without censoring a journalist or banning, but Nigeria on average bans up four songs a month. So and uh, and and uh, so they and so f- you take Bobby Wine. You know, there are some of his songs that cannot be played, but he can express himself uh, fairly freely on his social media platforms. So. So that is a growing because there's a whole new language, a whole new terminology, um, you know, that is developing. A lot of it uh, couched in local pigeons and creoles, which resonate with young people, which has functioned to turn music into a very, very powerful force, probably in ways we we'll last saw so in the independence and immediate post independence era. So, in any discussion about, about uh, political commentary and uh, debate, and it is a repression necessarily has to look at what's happening in the music space too. Thank you very much. Um, now I would like to open
3: up for questions from the floor. Um, anybody who wants to ask a question, we need to use one of these microphones, so please come forward. But
7: anybody who dares to start? Mm-hmm. Um, my name is John. I'm from Nigeria. Um, my question goes to Man. Uh, you said in your introduction that you, uh, you can publish something as an international journalist compared to what your domestic colleagues could do. Have you ever uh, thought of uh, the implication of publishing what they cannot publish? Has that, has that got them into trouble in their various countries? Uh, to start with thank you
6: yes of course Uh, (laughs) that's um, that's why we we sort of we take as much care as we can Uh, because safety is sort of the most important thing Uh, some of the times uh, we can use names other times we can't use names for instance Uh, but but that's of course Uh, as I said as well because of the digital age uh, whatever I write here even in Norwegian can easily be translated and accessed by security services wherever so yeah we do
7: more questions and that goes to Charles from Uganda I guess you will know better uh, you see you've been talking about Chinese influence in uh, Africa you see the last four three uh, four five six weeks I've been reading in the social media that, oh, Africa has been taking a lot of loans from the Chinese, and then that's getting them into trouble. The Chinese take their infrastructures or whatever, particularly from Zambia. And that has, um, I don't know how to put it, that has irritated me. Is it (laughs) fake news or is it real news? So I guess you will know better. That's why I'm asking now.
4: Uh, it's uh, okay. It is, you know, if you look at the stock, <coughs> if if you look at Africa uh, collectively as a single economy, for example, the stock of Chinese debt, I think, is fourteen percent. So, in real terms, it's 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 very um, it's it's small, but uh, but the narrative, the narrative. Is um, for, for very because it tends to be very visible. So uh, if a government uh, uh, goes to the market for Eurobond, uh, you know, like happened, you know, they get the money and disappears in the budget, and you don't see it but uh, with the chinese then you build a very big railway and it's it's you know it's easier to talk about in fact um, you know i was just reading that if some of the important creditor discussions today in some of these african countries the chinese don't even sit at the table it's too small a lot of it is too private because money was cheap and the guys gorged on it so most of it is actually held by uh uh you know um uh, International financial institutions. So, in in some countries, the component of the Chinese debt might be huge, like in Zambia. But 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 that tends to be the exception. But even in Zambia, actually, if you look at the profile of the debt, um, you know the Chinese one is is still it's it's probably the single largest held by an individual. But as part of the total pot, it is. Uh, still fail us
1: more yeah no I, I actually have a question for Charles as well following up on yours um, it, it strikes me that you know the, when we speak about we speak about money and here uh, debt or loans from China and I, I think I can at least say for Angola it, it's quite real they are, are quite indebted actually to uh, the Chinese uh, or and generally have a lot of debt including to China which is their largest creditor but the, the whole conversation and, again, the, the journalism or the investigation on financial flows, sometimes licit, sometimes illicit, is very much from the West. Uh, a lot of the sort of uncovering or the unmooring of who owns who money uh, across the African continent is driven a lot by these, you know, including when you had the, the, the Panama uh, investigation and uh, and similar, you know, you find, of course, you uncover wealth or financial links to Africa. But a lot of this is sort of a, a discourse and investigation that is mainly, at least from what I can observe, taking place from the, the West. Uh, you know, so what is, why isn't there more kind of uncovering, more investigative journalism in Africa looking in terms of follow the money, right? Because this is sort of, <coughs> will always take you interesting places. So who does the government owe money to? What is the picture, for example, in Nigeria in terms of true news or, or what is the situation? Why isn't this sort of more part of the, the journalist uh, remit and investigation in Africa and looking at some of these type of numbers and uncovering with more hard facts about this is who, who owns money and relationships and power that you may not be aware of?
4: Uh, the part of it is uh, a structure of the industry. I mean, when I was working with the male and Guardian, you mentioned Amabungane, Amabungane is a funded external, it's only possible because it is funded externally with a mix of donor and all other <laughs> kind of money. If it wasn't there, there would be you no know, ama And part of the reason for that is uh, um, many times, um, you know, media managers are just not willing to invest, uh, say, twenty-five 000 or fifty thousand dollars to investigate a story for um, a month or two. Because just the return on it is not there. The second thing is of course these things get very politicized. Because the political division mirrors itself in journalism. You know, I am willing to protect my thief and I'll only chase your thief. And and, and you know then that becomes very problematic. So, you know, you you basically look there. Once you get you begin getting selective you lose the credibility to continue doing this. So over time, a lot of media have actually lost the credibility to do investigation because of their personal and ideological and political preferences. They cannot investigate all crooks equally. So uh, you know, I think that the combination of the economics of it, how the, political, uh, the partisanship and political divisions tend to affect how newsrooms work. Have combined to have, uh, you know, a, a deleterious effect on investigative journalism, particularly of grand corruption. Mm.
6: Um, it, it's not that bleak. There, there was African researchers both on Panama Papers and Paradise Papers, mm-hmm. um, both in, in in especially in Southern Africa and in South Africa, but also mm. in places like Mozambique. Mm-hmm. So so there has been there is a network there of of African researchers as well, but uh, it's as you say, it's a, it's a way to go. It's, it's very expensive journalism. Uh, it takes quite a lot of skills and access to databases uh, that sometimes can be expensive or you have to access it from European countries sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, um, but as I say, we're trying to change that.
3: <laughs> but, but I suppose that this also has, has a certain amount to do with, with reputations and, and who, you, who you trust as sources of information. I remember visiting... Angola quite a few years ago and being driven around Luanda by a, a taxi driver and it was a basically a guided tour of Isabel dos Santos's <laughs> what she owned in around town sort of that bar that that flat sort of this was in a, way, a little bit sort of public knowledge about <laughs> sort of people you know sort of, and and I've experienced the same in Zimbabwe sort of that is Grace's that was that's Roberts. Just sort of <laughs> and, and and you sort of sit around and sort of thinking that actually people actually know a lot of what's going on, and that you just probably need the right media, the right journalists to get those stories out.
1: Since we're first tell, doing sort of anecdotes, I can just uh, make it more entertaining. As I was, I was in uh, Tunis in Tunisia right after the revolution. <coughs> And uh, the president and his family was, again, common knowledge what they owned. But uh, unlike just pointing out, they actually, during the revolution, they torched and destroyed pretty much all the buildings uh, that belonged to them. So it became a sort of, uh, that was part of the revolution, was not just pointing it out, but actually kind of public anger and uh, and setting uh, them ablaze, a lot of these, these buildings. So
4: Another question from the back then?
8: Sorry, (coughs) my name is uh, Garabzi. I come from Uganda. Uh, My question goes to Brother Charles. Um, When uh, Julius Malema, uh, Brother Muhammad uh, Gaddafi, uh, Robert Mugabe, and uh, Idi Amin, peace be upon him, uh, stood up and they, uh, they pro- when this, when this, uh, they expressed themselves, it was seen as a hate speech. Uh, can you please uh, enlighten us about uh, or even the limits where hate speech is? Is it only limited to journalists and uh, citizens and our leaders can't have that kind of uh, freedoms?
4: Thank you. Um. I think I think I think the law basically applies to, or or the definition of hate speech to the extent that it re, it leads in uh, usually in Africa the consequences are very dire. Uh, people get slaughtered and um, chased away from the areas where they live. So um, now politicians do it, journalists do it, and you know the presidents do it. The difference is that the presidents are powerful enough, uh, and at home they can protect themselves. The only way in which they were being brought under pressure in recent years was in the International Criminal Court, but I think that story is over now. Uh, you know, I think they have mobilized against that and basically been able to kill the ability of the ICC. Um, you know, to do anything in Africa for for a long while, it has to be really uh, a lot more unity and political consensus in Africa to make that work again. So, you know, you're right that as of now, uh, the leaders can get away, or you have to be the kind of leader who will get in trouble with the powerful international forces. So if you are a leader who has friends in the West or in the East or something, you'll get away with it, you'll be protected. But if you're the kind of leader who doesn't have friends in the right places, Then you get in trouble like happened with yaha yame in the gambia eh? he lost friends (laughs) and he was saying terrible things and his militants were going around and attacking other people so the leaders rallied around him he lost support outside africa He lost support in the region and he was kicked out so it's not a fair system you're right i mean it's terrible but that's the political reality any more questions
8: Yes. I, I don't think you really answered my question because, I asked, uh, because they, uh, they are treated uh, as uh, haters when they speak about the plight of their people. You understand? So in other words, we, um, it's like they don't have the right just to have the freedom of speech. You get my point?
4: well generally they do until they run out of luck you know Mugabe was at it for 36 years (laughs) and Gaddafi for 42 that that's a long time to be uh, to be doing to be in the hate speech and uh, hostile propaganda business and to get away with it so it's they do actually get away with it eh? it's just that they just they run out of luck they overplayed their hand but uh it is it's a good run forty two years for gaddafi was uh, was and 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 in a many ways some of the things Gaddafi did was very very divisive and and you know for you if you come from Uganda his role in uh, during the years of amin and during those years were really terrible you know um you know how he financed the whole state ideology or who is the enemy and that kind of thing and people got mm-hmm. killed. It took, you know, the intervention of, you know, the Tanzanian army and, uh, and uh, you know, Uganda distance to get him out. And that's why they, you know, you know in 79, when they came, the only group of people whom they didn't let escape were the Libyan contingent, who were in a town where our main air- airport is called, and they were trapped along the main road. And they refused to let them go. They killed all of them. So it's it's a controversial history, and I think we should not gloss over it. Eh? Um.
0: Hello uh, oh. again. Oh, ah. I um, my name is I don't think I introduced myself in the beginning. So I'm, I'm my name is Johan. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council for Africa. Um, I have a question regarding. I mean, we've touched on it quite extensively throughout uh, the discussion today, um, but I just want to sort of bring back the sort of uh, take us a bit back to the um, to the title of the seminar, the long walk to press freedom on the continent. Uh, we've been s- touching on issues regarding public and private um, uh, financing for for uh, for press organisations. We've been talking about. Um, the sometimes minuscule uh, importance or, or outreach of traditional media. We know from 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 our own context, press press context, that uh, uh, income is is failing for the, for the large uh, media houses, and and we see that investigative journalism, for instance, and uh, and sort of in depth journalism, som- sometimes uh, suffers under the general trend of of lack of finances um, for for journalism um, we also um, have noted that there are of course I mean obviously there are there are shortcomings to public publicly owned uh, or um, a large dominance of public uh, media houses but we'd like but you also see for instance uh, yeah well, we see in several countries also that 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 um, um, Privately owned media houses are not necessarily, uh, in any way, uh, objective or 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 sort of bringing uh, or telling truth to power uh, in a in a way that has no agenda. Uh, like like we've been talking about the uh, the role of social media is is important, but the the investigative journalism by, for instance, Amadou Bugani and and other. Uh, um, and other um, investigators, they are, they rely on support from outside of the country often. That often undermines their their credibility in the face of of uh, holders of power. Uh, we have those. We have instances of that uh, throughout the continent. Um, it's it's kind of in that, and obviously in if you base your media uh, your media house or your your strategy on. Um, sharing of information in closed social media groups, then how does that transform into uh, a financing solution for the, the journalism that you do? So basically what I'm asking here is in this long walk towards press, press uh, uh, freedom on the continent, where, com- where does financing come in? Come in? How, what is the big financing solution for this free press that we want? The, on the African continent, because I, to be honest, I, I don't see it from, from our discussion uh, right now.
3: Hmm. That was a major question, maybe bored, <coughs> since you're an academic. <laughs> um,
5: obviously a very critical question, and it's related to one issue which we haven't talked about, and that is self-censorship hmm. by journalists because of economic conditions. Uh, in a newspaper and ownership structure in the country, I know uh, um, best among those we are talking about. Kenya. There is obviously the case that in some of the big media houses are owned by politicians. Uh, Uhuru Kenyatta's family owns uh, several, many actually, uh, media. Um, Moi's family own the Standard. Uh, there is the Daily Nation, which is owned by a Khan, but I think also Uhuru Kenyatta's family has invested in that. No. It is not okay the um, fake news <laughs> but at least the others are, are correct and certainly that has an influence on what people are doing uh, obviously it, it, it might have that in terms of self-censorship in the early 19, er, in the late 1980s and early 90 and 2000 uh, uh, early 1990s there was a lot of self censorship in these papers. But I think it lessened to a very large degree during the 1990s. And I think that is the case still, that uh, there is uh, an attention to that problem among journalists. Uh, you might talk much more about that. It is not like it was in the early, early 1990s. It's, it's, it's a much better situation on that. But certainly, ownership is, is a critical issue.
4: Well, uh, I mean, you're right, this, you know, the situation is dire. Because if you look at all the listed... Companies, you know, in East Africa, in the last four years, they have lost eighty-five percent of their market cap, and you know, and when um, when you lose value like that, on the, then it becomes very problematic, and it's happening in a context where digital disruption and the thing is, if you go to a country like Mauritania, Mauritania, just this disruption has actually killed all newspapers. There is just new and. If you think that the future of Mauritania is going to be the future of the rest of Africa, my own sense is that the next five years, you know, if you talk of newspapers, I think probably 50 to 60 percent of the stock of newspapers in Africa today will have closed. I don't see them surviving. So that that presents a challenge. So what do you begin to do? I think that. Um, one of the things we're beginning to see is it's it's. Uh, let me give uh, you know an example of uh, there is a, a journalism blog in Kenya um, which does a mix of history and current news. So one of the things is that it became hugely popular and people said, okay we can do something with this, so can we get the episodes of all your reports and create mini-dramas out of them. And uh, and they did. So the mini-dramas, all the episodes they've done have been sold up except one, which was sold 75%. So we are beginning to see experimentation with the new formats, which begin to get. So in uh, in terms of the long road, this is kind of like uh, uh, the part where you get at the top of the hill and you go to the valley. And I think we are beginning to see people climbing out that. So we are beginning to see some uh, um, kind of innovative approaches and even groups like Nation themselves have got into much more data journalism, a lot of enterprise journalism and there are a lot of better funding models there around native content, which promises to be able in probably another six, seven, eight years to get some of these companies that will continue to innovate on that path to get them out of financial trouble. But before then, there'll be a lot of pain. There will really be a lot of pain. If, if uh, you know, they, they are, and you know, and I mentioned this uh, yesterday to our group, and then, you know, there, there's another development which is uh, the return of uh, the old international media. So for example, the BBC. The BBC has done this new chain of regional bureaus. And um, I think in East Africa, within one or two years, it will have the largest newsroom. And it's it's doing aggregation and all these platforms. And I think, you know, without doubt, in about five or six years, outside of NASPAS, the BBC is going to be the largest continent-based uh, media. So that is going to happen, of course. So you will still have some journalism. The difference is that it will not be managed by, uh, or, or I mean, the uh, the generals will be African, but the ownership will not be.
0: What do you think of that? May I ask? Sorry. What do you think of that?
4: <sighs> it's a disaster, but <laughs> it's it's uh, it's it is a real disaster. if if you see, um, you know, the new, you know, the BBC newsroom now is three hundred people. That is huge, you know. Um, in another one or so, and because everyone else is ranking, within another one or two years, it will be the biggest, and it takes the best. And mm-hmm. it's replicating this in West Africa, it in Southern Africa. And, uh, and, and then if you see the digital media licenses, it's, uh, the digital TV licenses that have been um, given out in Africa, if you go in the granular details, all of it is Tana broadcasting and all sorts of international media. So, as soon as, particularly the issue of white spaces, frees itself up, and uh, people are able to get in there and broadcast, I think that that space will largely be dominated by international players who have the technology and the money to invest in it. So, it will be a long period of marginalisation, I think, for for um, for African media as we know it today.
3: Mm -hmm. um, Hello. Hi, my name is Jonas. Thank you all for your contributions. Uh, My question is for all of you, but I guess perhaps in terms of investigative journalism, um, maybe it's directed to you first. Uh, I take it uh, most of you are familiar with the case of Anas, uh, the Ghanaian investigative journalist. Uh, We spoke of journalists, investigative journalism earlier. Um, but Anas was, was deemed a hero uh, for quite a number of years with his investigative journalism uh, across the continent. But lately, he's been regarded very divisive, uh, in particular in Ghana. So yes, my question is uh, if you may have a comment on the uh, Anas
6: case. <laughs> um. Uh, yes i know the case and i've heard the criticism as well uh and uh, i've met him several years ago but i've sort of i think there's something in that criticism (laughs) (laughs) but i think um again we have to step up we just have to be better more professional uh we need more people in these networks uh in that way it will be easier also to uh, sort of demask false prophets um it's. I think uh, I, I do share the the sort of. Um, uh, it's it's a problem of funding. It's a problem of, of resources. But I think, again, the only way we can counter that as well is more professionalism, more training, um, more networking, to try to to sort of counter. Uh, whatever things creeps in, uh, like the case of Anas as well. I think if 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 you had a stronger network in in Ghana, he would have been exposed a bit earlier.
3: The other comments?
4: Um, y- yes, I think I think people like Anas played a very important role at an early stage, going in areas where uh, people were and just opening up the space of what is possible. And I think he's run into trouble. But I think that the bigger problem is uh, my main criticism of investigative journalism in Africa. It is just this obsession that you have to get, that investigative journalism means catching someone with his hand or her hand in the cookie jar stealing. So if, if you see the biggest issues in even something that can be investigated at very low risk, like pollution, deforestation, which I think are a much bigger issue for, you know, the, that these things are possible to do are totally no risk. Um, it might still cost money, but the political risk is zero. So I think that the problem with investigative journalism is, I think the bigger problem is that it is too narrowly focused. On getting the crook and making the big headline, it's not really, um, you know, investigating. I think the issues which, if you bring to light and there is intervention, can change life. Thank you very
3: much. We are now um, reaching the end of our um, our time. Um, I just thought, as a final question and uh, as an opportunity to, for the panel to to sum up, in a way, basically ask we this long walk to freedom. What um, what sort of journalistic skills should one do? You think one should prioritise in th- the years going forward? Uh, Charles seems to have an optimistic view that stretches from sort of two to six <laughs> years forward that something good might actually happen. But sort of, if you were to advise a sort of a young young journalist, what what sort of skills sh- should I aim for? What, what what would you say if we if start with Charles?
4: <laughs> I think I think that uh, she, she touched on it, and you know because a lot of the resources that are necessary today are available online, and I think that the information challenge itself has become smaller. The bigger challenge is the ability to mine it and get access to it, and throw tools which make sense of the data. And to provide a very easy entrance. So, if I was a young journalist, I would really focus on data journalism, mm-hmm. and just improve my ability to work, um, you know, to work with the technology and uh, and to build to build, uh, you know, um, platforms that express it. Some apps, and, you know, uh, design tools for projecting um, stories, but but basically to be smart at being able to mine data because then you just layer a basic narrative around it and you have great journalism which tracks well.
3: Joachim?
1: It's not really my my area of expertise, but I, I think that sounds very reasonable that you would need more hard skills moving forward, meaning that if you are going to be able to understand and transmit knowledge on... Things that uh, require, uh, you know, an insight. So I think again, you could say finance, economics, you know, an understanding of how markets work. How this question about, you know, the the debt to China, uh, it requires some understanding of exactly what. How does debt work? You know, how do how are loans? It's it's a pretty complex picture if you're going to sort of uncover how a country is indebted. So I think that that requires some sort of hard skills and understanding uh, to do that. But if I can make one final comment, is says uh, we've obviously focused mainly on the African continent, but the, the one thing we haven't discussed, which is sort of caught really the media headlines, and if one was going to take what is a pretty tragic and shocking event and turn it into something positive, it's obviously the murder of Khashoggi, the, the Saudi journalist who was murdered in the, the Saudi Arabian uh, consulate in, in Istanbul, who was a journalist and... Um, Uh, I think, you know, that case shows that there is, when we were saying sort of how low can we go in terms of democratic development, in terms of what world leaders can say and get away with, in terms of press freedom, I think if everyone was going to take a positive spin on that, you know, the public outcry really across the board about this, just saying it is unacceptable, somewhat ironic that leaders like Erdogan is all of a sudden defending, you know, the the journalists and... uh, in the eludible rights of freedom of expression. But still, I think that has that case has touched something about saying that it's just wrong and that powerful countries, powerful people should not get away with murder, and especially not murder of a journalist. Uh, then obviously you have lesser known cases like the Maltese journalist who, who uncovered corruption and was, uh, uh, although she sort of in certain circles, has gotten attention, and that case uh, has perhaps not gotten the attention globally that it deserves, uh, and this happening in our own hemisphere, if you like, um, I do think that these cases do still evoke some kind of um, shared universal values about the value of journalism and that it's just wrong uh, in the case of the Khashoggi murder. So I, I think if we're going to be positive about that, uh, I, I think we are sort of maybe it can do something for uh, the universal protection of, of journalists, which was, be, which was under pressure like democracy, like human rights. Um, So, in that sense, I would maybe take a tragic event and say there can be something optimistic or something positive (laughs) coming from it.
5: Well, as it was said, being smart is always smart, and I think that the new technology gives a lot of opportunities that you have to utilize. But I think that the future also lies in developing high ethical standards which is touching on the case you are discussing high ethical standards which needs to be nurtured all the time learned anew and discussed all the time so i think that's very i think that's um, very important and that's part of what we call professionalism i presume uh, professionalism uh, about ethical issues uh, and then lastly i think it's important to be concerned with not just the high profile cases and issues but with uh, with uh, conditions on the ground among common people uh, expose things which are going on in society, in small societies. There is a lot of change going on in small societies, uh, among NGOs, among local community mem- uh, communities, um, in economics, in social affairs, uh, in schools, and all that. So I think that that is uh, to have a focus on what really matters for people um, in their daily lives is is very essential. Modern.
6: I agree with Charles as well. Uh, We usually say when we go around doing training for journalists that they have to learn their country's access to information laws. Uh, Access to information laws are actually implemented in uh, African countries that you wouldn't think you had them. (laughs) Uh, Which means that as a journalist, instead of running after some politician that don't want to speak to you or maybe even hurt you, you can try to get the documents and that's getting much easier much more documents are online much more like you said mining data sources uh getting official documents off the internet the governments put them even the angolan government put a lot of stuff online that everybody can access so so it's it's learning those skills uh it will make journalists vote safer uh it's it it, it takes less time than actually running around and it's uh, it's uh, well it's a good thing it's it's gold (laughs) basically learning the access to information laws Um, I know East African countries have have been implementing them for the past like two or three years
3: good thank you very much a hand for my panel (laughs)